Everybody might have a child, not an alcoholic. And I don't like to complain. But I got off the airplane, and there was nobody there. I kind of wandered around and tried to look like I was a person, you know. The only person along. All the other people left the flight, hugged their people who were greeting them and left. And there I was. So I thought, well, maybe they're going to baggage plane. So I went down there and I stood around the baggage plane trying to look like I needed to be claimed. And eventually, a long time later, I heard my name paid. And there they were. They had forgotten to bring the slip and had my flight number on it. But that's okay. They found each other now. They got lost twice uh, after we got in the car coming here. I mean, they live here. I thought, you know... Probably I'll send somebody who knew where they were going. <laughs> anyway, we're here. I'm glad. We had a good time. We had a good time. Uh, we laughed a lot. And, uh, you know, I suppose other than just, you know, physically being sober, laughter is the greatest gift I've gotten here. Uh, my uh, my life right now is, uh, the past year has not certainly been the script I would have written, but, but yet, in spite of all of that, my life is better than it's ever been. And I've laughed a lot this last year, and uh, I've laughed a lot, laughed a lot the last 20 years, and I think that that is um, the greatest gift. I remember sitting in my first meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous, sitting in the Norm Alfie's speech, and this guy made me laugh. And I remember thinking I hadn't laughed like that, and I was really laughing like from the gut, you know, and I, it was such a, a wonderful feeling. I don't think I've ever laughed like that, or I certainly couldn't remember the last time I had laughed like that. And I've had a lot of laughters like that since I've been sober. Uh, I am an alcoholic. I drank the first time when I was 13. I drank that particular night because I was at a party. People were drinking. I wanted to fit in. Presumably, I fit in. They were my friends. But, but I've never really felt, um, you know, quite like I fit in. I've always felt awkward and ill at ease. I've always felt like you all had some... I don't know, people getting along that I don't have. Uh, I never knew how to do social chit chat with people, you know. Um, incidentally, I'll tell you a little bit, I, mean, I can see already, I'm too many things I'm going to digress already. I'm sorry. Usually I'm very sort of methodical and, and both chronologically, you're not getting that this morning. Um, when, I was, when I was sober about 15 years, I was at a meeting one night and, um, I got there, I was going to speak at this meeting, and I got there really, really early, which I hadn't really meant to do, because that would mean I got to go in and talk to strangers for an hour, and I didn't really, you know, I don't like to do that, and, uh, but I got there, and, and so now I'm there, and I got this cup of coffee, and I'm rolling around thinking, how in the world am I going to fill this hour of time in this room full of strangers, and this man came up and got this conversation, and before I knew it, we were counting the gap, and the meeting had started, and I, I thought, no, oh, I can't believe I've been in this conversation with this guy for an hour, how can that be? It wasn't until I was driving home that I, that I kept thinking about it, you know, because I can't do social shit yet. And uh, when I was driving home, it occurred to me the reason we had this wonderful conversation that went on for so long is that for the last, at that time, 15 years, I had been living life. I've been doing things. I had, in fact, been doing things to talk about. Um, before I got sober, what I did is I drank. Uh, it doesn't bring much to a conversation, you know. Um, but since I've been sober, I've been out there living my life and having experiences and doing things and, and uh, it makes me, I guess, a more interesting person. Uh, it makes you more interesting to me, too, I might add. Uh, I never was particularly interested in anybody except myself until I came here. Um, anyway, I'm at this party and I'm feeling this, like I don't know how to talk to these people and, and uh, awkward and, and all of that, and somebody offered me a drink. And so I took it without much thought one way or the other about should I do this or not, I just took it. And, uh, the magic happened for me. Uh, I drank it and, and I felt better. I felt relaxed and comfortable. I could talk to people at that party. I um, felt quite fascinating, actually. I don't know if I was, but I felt like I was. But, um, it, it was magic. You know, it was really magic. Now, that night I also blacked out, passed out, and woke up the next morning in bed with a Marine that I didn't know. It wasn't exactly what I'd meant to do. You know, I was a nice girl from Newport Beach, and none of the girls in my crowd were behaving like this, and I felt real, real bad the next day. I felt, um, well, as you might imagine, I'd feel guilty and ashamed and remorseful. I was terrified that I'd get pregnant. I mean, just whatever bad feelings you might imagine, I certainly had them. And yet, I drank again at the very next possible opportunity. You know, apparently I was willing to pay whatever price there was to drink from the very beginning. Um, Okay, apparently, I didn't really think it through, but 
But that is exactly what I did. I drank every possible opportunity from that moment until the time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 30 years old. I was, I was periodic for a while. I mean, I was 13 years old. I did not have access to alcohol every day. I believe I probably would have been drinking it every day if it had been available to me. Um, certainly, as soon as it was available to me every day, I was drinking it every day. I, uh, you know, my story is no different than, than many women alcoholics. I, I do this badly. You know, I described my first month and it kind of went downhill from there. I mean, I, it never got any better. I, this was where I grew up was sort of a small town. Everybody in my school knew everybody and, um, I developed a reputation. It wasn't the one that I, you know, had intended to have. I come from a nice home and, uh, went to church and, uh, was involved in this church youth group and got good grades at school and I had a, you know, I sort of intended to live my life a certain way and I'm 13, 14, 15 years old and I've already, already flown every sort of moral code that I had in mind and, and it, you know, I, it's sort of like I gave up. Uh, I, I never liked feeling that way but I didn't see that there was any, uh, a way to change. I don't remember ever thinking that this had anything to do with drinking. I never, it amazes me looking back on it and it's quite clear, but at the time it just never occurred to me that see, maybe if you didn't drink, these things wouldn't happen. I mean, it, that never occurred to me. Uh, by the time it occurred to me, by the time I um, got around to thinking that, you know, maybe if I stopped drinking, my life would be better, I couldn't stop. I don't know if there was a time earlier on that, that I might have been able to stop, um, you know, because I didn't try. By the time I got around to trying, I, I couldn't. Um, I uh, got married when I was 18 because somebody asked. <laughs> That's the reason I come up with, even after all these years. I, uh, he was not actually even the fellow that I was seeing at the time that I liked the best, but he was the one who asked, and so we got married. And, you know, I was 17 and a half years old when he asked me to marry him. This was not over the hill by anybody's standards. But, but I felt, um, I remember feeling relief when this guy asked me to marry him. I mean, I hadn't been aware that I'd been worried that somebody might not, but, um, you know, I noted it first that I, that I have no self-worth. I mean, I, I, and this guy asked me to marry him and it made me feel like somebody, and so I said yes, and, and of course now you're not sure that you ought to be doing something, overdo it, that's always been my theory, and so we planned this huge church wedding with hundreds of people, and, and a lot of my parents' money for this event, and um, six months later we were divorced. And uh, I moved to L.A. after that, which is not all that far away, 50 miles up the road. I got a job and an apartment, and it was really not 18 and a half years old, I guess. I was uh, on my own, really, for the first time in my life, uh, and I became a daily drunk from, from the moment uh, I moved to L.A. I, be- I began drinking daily. My first job in L.A. was for a trucking company. Um, I drank in these bars and these truck drivers drank. I, uh, they weren't, uh, bars that women gently drank in, which is, of course, is why I liked them. I got quite a lot of attention there and felt real special and important. And that's all I've ever wanted to do is feel special. And, and so I drank there and I, um, developed pretty much the same reputation as the second company that I had in high school, only now it was sort of like bigger leagues is all, you know, and, um, and I didn't, my father was vice president of this company, the second company where I was working, um, that's how I got the job. Uh, I had these great secretarial skills, but I but I had no actual experience, and so I had asked him if he'd give me a job there, and he said, well, you know, I'm really reluctant to hire a family member. This really makes me nervous. Because <laughs> they have no idea how nervous you should have been. Um, but he said, I understand that you need experience, and so I'll give you a job, and you understand it, it'll take just a year, and then, you know, have something good to put on your resume, and then you can move on. And I was really grateful for the opportunity. It was a good job. And I was grateful for the opportunity. And uh, so I began to work there, and I began to sleep with everybody, and I developed this horrible reputation. And my father was humiliated and embarrassed beyond belief. And, um, you know, that's how I lived my life. I, I didn't sort of meant to behave that way, but, but that's what I do, you know. And I don't, you know, I've never thought of myself as being a particularly promiscuous woman. I just fall in love a lot. You know, that's kind of the way I thought at the time. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I left the job actually before the year was up because it you know, kind of uncomfortable there, and uh, got another job and behaved there exactly the same way. Here's how I live my life. Um, if I'm working for this company, you're all my friends. You are you are my friends. I work with you. I eat my meals with you. I drink with you. I sleep with you. 
When I leave this company, it's like you're all dead. Well, you're all my new friends with this new company, and I leave here with all of you. I did not have that dilemma that, that a lot of people have when they get to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's, you know, well, what about my friends? What do I tell my friends? I literally did not have any friends when I got here. Uh, I had long since burned out everybody that never had had any interest in me whatsoever. I, I was married sort of by the skin of my teeth to a man who cared not much for me and that I certainly didn't care for, you know, in return, and, and that was pretty much it. Um, and so I began this, you know, I could stay on the job about a year and then I, then I was just so uncomfortable I'd have to leave. You know, I, I, when I was new on the job I'd be sort of nervous and, and I think alcoholics, when they're actually working, um, work harder than most people and so I'd be new and nervous and, and so I'd work real hard and, and I'm good at, at what I do and so I'd make a little impression on the boss and a couple of months would go by and he'd give me a little pat on the back or a little raise or tell me what a fine job I was doing and then I'd relax. You know? Now I start, you know, my drinking starts creeping into the, to the workplace there, and uh, pretty soon it's a big mess, you know. Uh, I'll tell you the kind of things I am, and sum it up in one, in one work-related story. I went out with my boss and some co-workers one night after work, and uh, we were bar-hopping around downtown L.A., and everybody was drunk. I was not the only person in that crowd who was drunk that night, but evidently I was drunker than the rest of them. Because when we wound up in the strip joint, I was the only one who auditioned for a job. <laughs> It seemed like such a good idea at the time, you know. Um, after I got offered that job, which began what I'd like to call my show business career, uh, I, uh, I, I, did, I got offered this job and then I thought, well, I'm a nice girl from Newport Beach. I couldn't possibly work as a stripper. But it sort of gave me an idea. And at that time, go-go dancing was sort of the height of popularity in Los Angeles. Every um, nightclub had go-go dancers. All the nightclubs on Sunset Strip had go-go dancers. And it, somehow in my mind, I had go-go dancers seemed to cut above a stripper. I don't know why, but it just seemed that way And so I, I went and got a job as a go-go dancer. Now, I did not work in any of those nightclubs on Sunset Strip, I just tend to do. I worked in some terrible, terrible dumps. Uh, I worked in places where I often was the only person who spoke English. You know, uh, just awful little guy. Uh, and now I kept my secretarial job, and, and I start, started leading this sort of double life. I would get up in the morning and go to work at my office job, and I'd be dressed kind of like I am now, and I was fairly quiet, and uh, I wasn't getting much sleep, but I wouldn't have much to say to anybody by now. I'd just sit there and do my work, and I'd get off at five, and I'd drive down to the Institute Joe's, or wherever I was working at the time, and take off most of my clothes and have a few drinks and go to work, and I'd work until two in the morning. Now, that's a lot of hours, from five or six in the evening until two in the morning. To drink enough, I can't do this kind of work sober. <laughs> So I've got to keep enough alcohol in my system that I can get up there and, and do this kind of work, but not so drunk that I can't do it. The problem is I'm an alcoholic, and I cannot control my drinking. I try, but I can't do that. Uh, I never uh, I never undershot the mark, because if I if I didn't feel, you know, sort of happy enough, it's sort of the way I thought. If, I, if I'm not happy enough to get up there and I'll just have another drink, I'll just stay in the back room and have another drink until I'm ready. Um, but I often overshot the mark, uh, because I'm an alcoholic, and, and I can't control my drinking. More than once, more than 50 times, I'm sure, uh, I passed out on stage. I mean, with crap, the stage, and household. Uh, the kinds of places that I was working, it didn't matter much. Uh, everybody seemed to understand. They were, you know, they, they had a little, a niche there. I remember they had a little back room, and a couple of guys, usually a couple of customers, would Pick me up and turn me in the bathroom. We had a little sofa there, apparently for this very purpose. Put me on the sofa, close the door, and I would sleep it off. And if I came to you before the, before two o'clock, before the bar closed, you know, I can I still remember I'd get up and, you know, that horrible feeling of the thing passed out, and now you're coming here and the mouth and all, you know, and, uh, I'd remember splashing cold water on my face and sort of fixing my hair and then coming back out on stage and what seemed to me thunderous applause as they were so happy to see me that I felt so loved and special and important and I'm not kidding, Elizabeth Taylor at the very height of her popularity could never have felt more, uh, than I felt from those audiences in that really and truly, um, I met my second husband there at Nick, who was a customer and, um, he was, as it turns out, probably the most unsuitable man in all of Los Angeles. If you had lined up all of you in L.A. looking for a husband for me, this would have certainly been the last man my mother would have been. Uh, we, we lived together a while, and, and eventually we got married. It turned out we were married for 11 years, and my parents never met him. They felt so strong. I think And, uh, you know, I had no idea why I married him at the time. I, I think, um, 
a lot, you know, several reasons going together, not the least of which is it was starting to get scary for me out there. You know, I was uh, drunk all the time, drunk every, I wasn't drunk all the time, I was drunk every day, and, uh, and I behaved badly, and the, the situations I was getting into were getting scarier and scarier, uh, uh, I, uh, the people that I was, you know, waking up with were getting sort of more bizarre, and, and uh, and also alcohol is starting not to work for me, which I did not understand. I phrase alcohol started not to work. I, I never heard such a phrase until I came to alcohol and Anonymous. And I, I remember hearing um, a man at my first meeting use that phrase and I knew exactly what it meant. Because that's just what happened to me. I was still getting physically drunk. I mean, certainly if you passed me in the street, you would say, that woman is drunk. But, um, but it didn't work, you know, here like it used to. It sometimes it did, but but not usually, and not for very long. And I kept drinking and drinking, trying to recapture that man, just not knowing that it's sort of a trick of death there on the drinking. Um, I didn't know any of that, you know. Uh, so that's going on. And also, I uh, just prior to the time that I got married to the husband, I started getting arrested. And, and I, it can't be happening to me. I'm a nice girl from Newport Beach, as I see it. Um, the truth of the matter is, I had not been a nice girl for a long, long time. But but I wasn't very clear on, on the details there. You know, I... Um, my first arrest was on a Thanksgiving night. I had been uh, to Thanksgiving dinner. My parents' house was about six miles away. I had driven down there for Thanksgiving dinner. My husband, of course, had not been invited. He was with my husband to be at the time. Um, and uh, he had gone to a thing that his boss had had some sort of a party for the employees, a Thanksgiving party. So he'd gone there, and I'd gone to my folks, and I obviously had drunk a lot. And um, so coming back to L.A., and I got arrested coming out of a bar, um, on Main Street in downtown LA. That's Skid Row. Uh, I don't, that's, the bar is not in a straight line from where my folks lived to where I was living. I don't know, I'm a little hazy on the details of that night. But anyway, there I was coming out of this bar and I got arrested for common drunk on Main Street and took me to jail. And I got to jail and they uh, told me I could make a phone call. I was scared. I was just really scared. Um, I mean, there were terrible people in there. You know, really awful women. Bad women. I saw myself as this really nice girl. Um, so they told me I could make a phone call. I remember my husband was at this thing at his boss's house, so I called over there, and uh, the boss's wife answered, and I identified myself and told her that I was in jail because she had my husband come bail me out. It never for a moment occurred to me that that might be a little awkward for him, or perhaps embarrassing at work, you know. Yet, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous years later and heard you talking about making amends, I, I didn't think I owed amends to anybody. I, I, I seriously remember sitting in a meeting, hearing you talk about making amends and thinking to myself, no, I, I can't think of anybody I've hurt. Well, you know, if I knew you, I'd hurt you. I mean, I, I care nothing about you. I'm selfish and self-centered, exactly as it describes in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I like that, but it's the truth. You know, it is the truth. Well, he came and bailed me out. And, you know, it's just just going down. Well, my next director is in Tijuana for obscene dancing. Sort of get a picture developing there. You know, it's not good. So now I get married to this guy, and I started drinking at home. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I have this drinking problem under control now. And I'm sure I thought that because, I, you know, nothing much happens when you're drinking in a purple flannel bathrobe in a rocket chair you're living in. Well, I thought that my husband a lot, but that was about the, you know, the highlight of the day, as it were. Um, nothing much else happens. You don't wake up with same people. You don't go to jail. You know, you don't lose your car. Um, nothing happens. You know, and that became sort of my life. I, I had a job, but I went to, I always had a job to go to. Uh, by the end, it was not much of a job. I, I got sober when I was 30. I had peaked in my career when I was about 23, you know, and then started going downhill. And, and I was working this sort of terrible little secretarial job at the end. And, um, you know, some days I drink on my lunch hour, which is bad. Um, some, days, some days I don't drink on my lunch hour, which isn't particularly good either. Um, but I certainly am drunk every day. I, I get home from work, assuming that I have not drank at lunchtime. Uh, I get home from work, and the very first thing I do is walk in the kitchen and pick up a bottle of scotch and take a quick drink out of it. Once I'm there, once I have that first little swallow, and the bottle's there, I'm okay. Now I can relax, now I can take my coat off, just change into my focus on my bathrobe, and settle in for the evening of drinking. And that's what I do day after day after day after day. I, uh, Turned into one of those pathetic people who call people on the phone. Boyfriends I've had when I was 12. I'm now, you know, 27, 28, something like that. Three in the morning. 
We asked him like it was a Friday night. He said, do you think you could not take a drink tomorrow and go to the tomorrow night? And I said, oh, sure. Now, I don't know if I can do that or not, but I, you know, I know the right answer. And so um, he showed me the address of the meeting place, and, uh, and we hung up, and of course I continued to drink until I passed out, because that's what I do. And the next morning I came here, and I, um, I remember making a phone call, and I remember eating off of it. I mean, I remember getting a good piece of it, and I found a piece of paper where I wrote the address of the meeting place. Uh, now, the next morning, the light of day, it's just you know, oh, it's a good idea to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought that I'd probably been a little premature. I mean, I'm only 30 years old. I couldn't say I'm too young to be an alcoholic. But I couldn't get it out of my mind all day. I was just thinking about it all day. And that night, I heard myself saying to my husband, I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know who was most surprised with the words to not be or, or I, but when you have terrible, I mean, he said something about being like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> we weren't doing well in those days. And I dressed with some care, and I went off to my first meeting of alcoholics tonight. And if I say that I dressed with some care, because I remember that I changed clothes several times, you know how we want to do it. I mean, I I've always wanted to be dressed appropriately for this occasion, whatever it might be. Unfortunately, I've never been there, so I'm not, I have no idea whatsoever how you might be dressed there. So I, I just remember, um, I don't remember the clothes that I described as being inappropriate, but I remember this big pile of them on the bed as I left the bed in this big pile of clothes that I had tried, but no, not that way. The, in the end, I'm assuming that I went for comfort, because what I did uh, arrive here in the end was a rubber sponge on my feet, a bag of jeans, uh, and a knit top that, that all the knit had gone out of, you know, so and so old, so I took that home. Uh, I had two of these uh, knit things. I had a blue and white stripe and a red and white stripe one. And I alternated them between meetings about the first, I don't know, two or three months. That's when I wore the meetings, jeans and one of these knit tops. And I was seen when I would watch the red running today and wear the blue one. But that's what I wore. Nobody ever said anything to me about how I dressed at meetings until one night, um, I was maybe sleeping much sober and I had been somewhere earlier in the day and I didn't have time, I was running late, I didn't have time to go home and change into my meeting clothes. And so I came to the meeting dressed in what I happened to be dressed in that day. Which that particular day was a pants suit, and it was a really soft rose color, very pretty um, soft rose color. And I came to the meeting dressed in this outfit, and everybody, I mean everybody at that meeting, individually told me that I looked pretty. And it made me feel good. You know, it really made me feel good. And I started dressing better at meetings after that. But anyway, we went out to the first meeting, and I um, went to these travel cars, and I pulled up outside of the speaker meeting um, in the basement of the church in, in uh, Santa Monica. There were, I don't know, I think 300 people at that meeting, and um, it might as well get 30,000. You know, I saw the people the basement steps there, and I thought, there is no way I can get out of this car and go in there. But um, somehow I managed to do that, and I, um, I remember I walked in the door, and there was a man standing at the door. He put out his hand, and he said, well, my name is Clint. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I like to remember that because it made me feel welcome. It really did make me feel welcome. And, you know, I'm sober a while and I've got a lot of friends at meetings and I'm anxious to get to meetings these days and talk to my friends and the women I'm sponsoring. I just want to forget to look around for the nearest newcomer there and welcome them. That is probably the most important thing I can ever do at a meeting and that I don't always remember to do it. And I, I like to, I say it, not so much for you, but it reminds me that I need to do that. Um, I, uh, I went in the back of the room, of course, that's when we come and go. There was a room I think it had pillars like this, and so I went and stood behind one of these pillars in the back of the room now. It's 8, and it started at 8.30, so it's like, I don't know, 8, 10, 8, I guess. And I'm sick, and I'm thinking, I did not have a drink that day. The guy on the phone said, don't drink, so I haven't drank. But I needed a drink by 8, 10, 8 that night, real, real bad. I am a daily drunk, and, and I think often by 8, 10, 8, I'm already passed out, and so I was not doing good that night. I stand behind this pillar in these terrible clothes, sick and shaking and needing to drink so bad and sweating. Sweating was sort of a byproduct of this that I had. And, I mean, I just, it was horrible. I thought that I had some pretty wrong in my brain, you know. And I was over about six months and I realized I didn't sweat like that anymore. What a gift. That alone really should be enough to keep the person here. Anyway, so I'm standing behind the table, sitting wet, and I'm asking up and asking how it's new, and I remember thinking, how did you know that? And, um, well, yeah, because that's what I am. It seems like that. There's about 50 women coming at me. They're all writing their phone numbers on little stacks of paper. They're bustling around me and giving me a seat, something called a big book, whatever that is. And, and, uh, and the meeting started, and it was this man, Warren Alfie, who uh, spoke that night. And, um, for those of you who did not know him, um, he was a wonderful speaker. Uh, 
out of places to go, out of ideas, out of friends, out of people, out of everything, out of gas. Yeah, just out of gas. And thank God for it. I started going with the woman's girl, I don't know. Too long, as soon as I could tell my life wasn't getting any better, it seemed to be getting worse. My husband and I started fighting about alcoholics anonymous. Now, I don't know if you've got a question, we've been fighting all the years before, but we now have to have a new topic, you know. <laughs> and, uh, he thought I was coming to Alcoholics Anonymous to meet him. I was actually hoping to meet him here. Uh, I had cheated on my husband all the years we've been married. I certainly had known that he had no thought about stopping just because I was going to get sober. I mean, this is just sort of how I live my life. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it at all, to tell you the truth. And, and I certainly someone in the middle looked good to me. And, um, and I was interested, but none of them, none of those men really appeared to be interested in me. It really hurt my feelings a lot. And it also made me mad that my husband was accusing me of something that I wasn't doing right at that minute. And, um, so we had a lot of trouble, you know. I thought, I know you all say your case is different, but I thought my case really was different. I thought that I had to satisfy anybody who had a friend of alcohol experience. I tried all the time, you know. I would get up in the morning, go to work, come home from work, we'd have dinner, we'd have bus fights. I would get in the car, sobbing hysterically from the bus fights, drive to the meeting, even if I wasn't driving the car accident, driving to the meeting, because I always was trying on the way to the meeting. I would get to the meeting, my sponsor's direction to me was to get to every meeting an hour before the meeting was to start. I would always have early commitments to meetings, like cookie station or coffee station or something. Like so I was to get to the meeting an hour early, do whatever it was I was supposed to be doing, and then I used to shake hands with every single person who came in the room and asked. I cried all the time. Uh, I would get up in the morning, go to work, come home from work, we'd have dinner, we'd have bus fights. I would get in the car, sobbing hysterically from the fights, drive to the meeting, even if I wasn't going to car accident, driving to the meeting, because I always was crying on the way to the meeting. I would get to the meeting, my sponsor's direction to me was, to get to every meeting an hour before the meeting was to start. I would always have early commitments to meetings, like cookie person or coffee person or something. And so I was to get to the meeting an hour early, do whatever it was I was supposed to be doing, and then I used to shake hands with every single person who came in the room and asked them how they were, so I cared. And, uh, I'm good at following direction. I don't necessarily get a good attitude, but I, but I do it. And that's um, maybe the most important thing I've learned here. It does not matter how I feel. It simply doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, if I waited until I felt like doing it, um, you might very well have a different speaker here. Because, uh, you know, I, this is life and death. We don't have time to wait for motivation here. You know, we just gotta do it. Uh, and it's guaranteed that we get back to our, our uh, feelings and everything. You know, it's just how it works. And so I would uh, go in the meeting, I'd do my cookies or whatever, and then I'd work the room. And I'd go, Hi, Fred, how are you? And Fred would say, Fine, how are you? And I'd tell him how I was. <laughs> Well, you know, my husband said this, and I said that, and, oh, God, Fred, I just don't know what's going to happen, so his eyes would glaze over, and I'd move on to the next person. Hi, Mary, how are you? That's what I did. You know, you were all pretty patient with me, um, but you weren't very helpful. You know, you'd say stuff with me as you were between. You'd say something like, keep coming back, just better a day at a time. Well, I don't know about you, but that doesn't do much for me. I'm dying right now, and you're giving me some vague day in the future. Maybe it's going to get better. You know, I, I need something a little, a little more to hang on to here. Uh, but I just keep coming back. You know what would happen to me is I'd get to the meeting, I'd do this, I'd you know work the room like that, and sit down, and the meeting would start, and, and you know whatever happened during the meeting, by the time I left, I felt better. Not necessarily great, but a little better. You know, and I'd get through another day, and I kept coming back. One night, um, and I think this is the most important thing I've learned in alcoholic drama, right here that I'm about to tell you. Uh, I was about 15 months sober, and I came to my home group meeting, and I was sniveling around the room, as I just described to you. And I went up to this guy, Larry, and I asked him how he was, and he said, fine, and made a mistake, but asked him how I was. And I started to tell Larry how I was, and he cut me right off and made sense. He said, I don't want to listen to that. Why don't you go find a newcomer to talk to you, perhaps you feel better. And he pointed to a girl in the back of the room and said, that girl over there in the red dress was at the very first meeting. You just march over there and talk to her. I remember thinking I didn't care if the girl in the red dress lived or died. I remember thinking at the same time that I wish Larry would die. <laughs> and then I, at the same time, I thought, if I don't do this, Larry's going to tell my sponsor. <laughs> Enough motivation for me. Uh, I went over and I put my hand out. I believe I was still crying as I welcomed this girl to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> 
So I don't know, I'm thinking about myself here, folks. You know, put my hand out and say, hello, my name is Pat. Um, the girl who had brought her to me um, said, oh, Pat, I'm so happy to see you. This is this girl's first meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. She had this big fight with her husband about coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've been waiting for you because I just knew you were the right person to talk to her. Well, you know how things go through your mind real fast, like a lot of thoughts at once? My first thought was, no, I am the worst person in the room to talk to her. It is, I am the worst. Anybody in the room would be better to talk to this girl than me. Alcoholics Anonymous is not working for me. I overlooked that I was sober there. All I could see was my cat and had this my poor little life was, you know. My second thought was, or sort of simultaneous thought was, well, 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 anybody in the room would be better to talk to than me. I am the one who is standing in front of her. I ought to try to take something positive or encouraging here. I mean, it is her first meeting. And I opened up my mouth, and I heard myself say, of all things, keep coming back. It's a better day at a time. Now, <laughs> I just lied to a newcomer. It's not true, you know? It's simply not true. But I'll tell you what happened to me that night. I had a spiritual experience. I really did. I turned and I walked away from this girl. I didn't talk to her long. I'm sure I might have said three more words, and I think they would not have talked to her any longer than that. I mean, I know I was. There was a center aisle in the, in the room of the church where the people were there, and I kind of was walking back down the center aisle, and I stopped dead in my tracks about halfway down that aisle, and it occurred to me that I was at a meeting in that hour period of time from the time I hit the door until the meeting actually starts, and it was the first time in those three months or whatever it was that I was sober. In that, in that period of time before the meeting that I was at a meeting and I wasn't crying. And the reason I wasn't crying was because for this little brief moment, I thought about somebody else besides myself. For this little teeny tiny moment, I tried to think of something positive or encouraging to say to the girl who was worrying me, and I felt better. You know, it says in the big book of alcoholics, Anonymous that it's important to work with others. It mentions that more than once, as a matter of fact. It leads me to believe it might be important. You know, um, I think it is important. I think all of the steps are, are of equal importance, but I think that working with others is the key to me um, being comfortable most of the time. I, I think that, uh, you know, people often describe alcoholics, you're going to get one of my opinions here, people often um, describe Alcoholics Anonymous as a self-help program, and I, I kind of don't like that um, description of it, because to me, in my mind, I self-help implies that I'm somehow thinking about myself a lot or working on myself a lot, or doing things with myself a lot. And I don't see Alcoholics Anonymous like that at all. Alcoholics Anonymous, once I get through the inventory step, is all outward. It's all about me being of service to you. It's about me making amends to you, paying the money back, being nicer to you than I was before, uh, being of loving service to you. It is all about me doing for you. And so I don't, you know, it's just, you know, it's just kind of words, but there you are. Thank you. Uh, it is a fact, as it turns out, though, when I'm thinking about you, I can't be thinking about me at the same time. And any day that I'm not thinking about me, I'm having a better day. And so is everybody around me. It is just that simple. You know, it's just that simple. I'm so grateful that I sponsor women in alcoholic Anonymous because it kicks me out of my head, you know. I uh, tell the women that I sponsor to call me in the morning before they go to work. Tell them to do that because it's a good way for them to start their day. I don't have a clue that it goes for their day, but it's a great way for them to start my day. Because I talk to them one after the other. They're, you know, they're sober different lengths of time, and they have living problems with stuff that goes on in people's lives. And, and so they call me and they talk to me about their lives, and I'm getting dressed and putting my makeup on and driving to work, and I'm thinking about this one or that one, or, you know, I don't have time to think about, about myself at all. Most mornings I'm all the way to work and haven't thought about myself once. What a great way for me to start my day, you know? Uh, I remember last summer, my husband, um, the past year, uh, past year, my husband had a heart attack about a year ago, his first heart attack, and uh, I had just started sponsoring a woman who had one day of sobriety, and I thought it was just great, because like, you don't see brand, brand new people so much in their meetings anymore. Usually they're coming out of treatment, you know, they got to eat there, they don't smell bad anymore, and um, this one really did. I was so excited to have her. And, and so I, I had her like for, I don't know, two days, I think, and my husband had a heart attack and he, and he was in the hospital. I spent like that next, you know, a couple of weeks pretty much at the hospital. And I would call home and call our office to pick up messages and try to keep, you know, life going on. And, and uh, most of the women that I sponsor, um, other than this one, were sober longer and, and they sort of know, because I'm out of town if they're now, so they know, you know, there's this one will call this other one if you have you know, a situation or whatever. So I didn't worry so much about them, but I really worried about this brand new girl. So I would hear these little 
will never leave this little pitiful voice. Oh, gee, you know, I don't want to bother you. I know you have And so I track her down all over town to call her back so I can talk to her. You know, and so my husband got better, and we're back at the meeting. And so at 35 days of Friday, and she called me. We had a meeting one night, and then she called me the next day, and she left this message on my voicemail saying, I'd really like to thank you for your help, but this is really all much too hard, and I'm putting alcoholics on it. And I thought, you are grateful, bitch. After all I have done for you, I've called you from that hospital. I've tracked you down all over town, and you are, and I was starting to laugh, and I'm thinking, this could all save my life. This girl is exactly what I mean. If God gave me that girl for 35 days, he couldn't have picked a better 35 days to give her to me. I mean, but those are the 35 days I really needed her, you know. I hope she gets sober again, but either way, you know, she, she saved my life those 35 days. I'm so grateful for it. Anyway, to go back here, I, um, I, uh, had a thought that just went right out of my head. <laughs> Um, I'm sitting around these meetings. I'm going to go back to what I'm doing. I'm sitting around these meetings. <laughs> Clearly, the problem is this husband at home. I mean, if you were married to this guy, you'd want to drink too. You'd cry all the time too. It can't be me. I mean, I'm working in a spiritual program, so the troubles in my home can't be caused by me. Uh, it would be safe to say, in retrospect, that I was not working any kind of a spiritual program in my home. I mean, I was staying sober, but... I was certainly not uh, working a spiritual program. I was not very easy to get along with, and nor was he, and, uh, and he had a lot of trouble. When I was about 10 months sober, I spotted a man in a neighboring meeting who looked really good to me. It was inevitable. with an attitude like the one I had about my marriage. It was inevitable that I would meet somebody who looked good to me. Uh, the gentleman in question was about 10 minutes sober. <laughs> and, uh, Spotted him the minute he hit the door, and I leaped across the chair to introduce myself to him. And my sponsor noticed and uh, reminded me that I was a married woman. And I remember, I think um, Ken was talking about uh, whining or sniveling or something like that. I, I remember I had this really whiny voice. I remember standing before my sponsor, her saying to me, Pat, you're a married woman, and saying in his voice, yeah, but I'm so unhappy. Because <laughs> nonetheless, you're married, and I expect you to act married. I said, you know, I don't see this as a problem. I will get divorced. But no, we in Alcoholics Anonymous, like y'all are having secret meetings somewhere, we in Alcoholics Anonymous don't think it's a good idea to make any major moves in our first year of sobriety. I'm not married to this guy. I am, you know, our first year of sobriety. Because you just stay married and you act married and leave this guy alone. But I'm upset. I know you understand what you're doing. I'm upset. <laughs> it is so clear to me. I don't understand why she doesn't see it or his sponsor either for that matter. Why would God get this guy sober in my home group if he didn't need for us to be together? I mean, this is so clear. <laughs> so we began that. I think of it as the best dance of AA. We began that. It starts where you um, rush up against each other in the coffee line. You know? And then... Um, then he's walking me to my car after the meeting. And then I was parking further and further away. And, uh, you know, it's complicated to, I mean, I'm a married woman. Obviously, we're not going to go to my place. He's a newcomer. He doesn't have a place. But you can make this stuff work. I'm telling you, if you want something bad enough, you can make it happen. And you can, most of the time, convince yourself it's God's will. You know, there's that little nagging thing that says, just don't pay attention to it. Just ignore it. Uh, I was working at a record company in Hollywood at the time. He was working very conveniently in Hollywood, also at a porn bookstore. And, uh, kind of a newcomer job, isn't it? He, um, I arranged a long lunch hour. I'm on ice up here. Isn't that nice? I arranged this long lunch hour one day at work for somebody to cover for me, and I went down and picked the feeding at the car. We went down and picked him up at the bookstore, and we went to a motel on Sunset Boulevard and looked at this package. Spent some time together and going back and dropped him off at his bookstore that afternoon. I'm driving back to my office and it occurred to me that day in the car that I was 10 months sober and I was living exactly the way I had always lived. I'd been sitting in meetings for 10 months at Alcoholics Anonymous, hearing me say night after night after night that I was going to have to change everything about the way I'd been living my life or I was surely going to bring to God. I'm not sure what I was thinking during those 10 months. I was probably thinking that it didn't apply to me. I, um, but I knew that day in the car that it did apply to me, and I was plenty scared. Because, you know, 
I've never wanted to be this kind of a woman. I've always wanted to be a woman that people would admire and respect. But wanting doesn't make it so. You know, wanting it doesn't make it happen. Uh, I don't see how alcoholics anonymous can help me here. I don't get it. You used to say, and you still say, but you were, you were saying that, and I heard you say that all the answers to your problems in life situations were in the big book of alcoholics anonymous. And I swear to God, I go home and go listen to that book looking for it. I can never find the answers. Well, they're there. They're there. But I was scared. I was also scared to tell my sponsor what I said, because she had been very, very clear in her direction about the fact. And she had left nothing to stand here. And, uh, but I, the bottom line here is I don't want to drink. I do not want to drink. And so I practically uh, tackled her when she came in the meeting that night, dragged her off to the side of the room and told her what I had done. And she said, you know, Pam, I think you've learned a really good lesson here, here today. I believe you're not a woman who could stay sober and cheat on her husband. You don't have to live like that if you don't have to say sober would be a better way of phrasing that. And you don't have to live that way anymore if you don't want to. You didn't have to pick up a drink today to, to learn that. You simply don't have to live that way anymore. Okay. I don't want to live that way. I'm just going to say it. I never want to live that way. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Here's what I did. This is real simple stuff. A day at a time, stayed away from that guy. Day at a time, I didn't drive by that bookstore. Day at a time, I didn't uh, call him. Day at a time, I didn't take his calls. Day at a time, when I saw him in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I shook hands with a straight arm, said hello, and kept moving. That's it. I just stayed away from him. The obsession eventually passed, of course, because obsession always passed. It's a really good news to me, is I don't live that way anymore. I just don't live that way anymore. What a gift. I never thought when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that I changed the way I lived my life. I just thought I wasn't going to drink and thought it was going to be this long, dreary, awful, how am I going to fill in all those empty hours of time, uh, life. Uh, I never dreamed that I could change my life and live like the woman I always wanted to, to be. What a gift. You know, what a gift. Uh, I'm married today to a fellow member of Alcoholics Anonymous and we have a good life. You know, I'm faithful to my husband and it's, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal, but I mean, it's not like a big effort. You know, it's the way I live my life. Uh, what a gift. I, uh, when I was a year and a half sober, my first sponsor drank. And I got a new sponsor. She was sober a long time. And the first thing she said to me is, you know, I want you to whine and sit and complain about this husband. So the moment you walk in the doors here, I want you to uh, change your, your actions a little bit. So I want you to act as though, just pretend that you're a kind and loving wife. This was not an appealing idea. I didn't want to do it. I didn't see the point. I remember thinking, I should get out of this marriage while I'm so young and have my look. <laughs> I thought I got an idea like that. But, um, he said, uh, you know, you've got a lot of amends to make for this guy. You've done a lot of stuff in that marriage. You've got a lot of amends to make. And the big book of alcoholics Anonymous is pretty clear in making amends. You can't do so when, when to do so might injure that person or others. So that seems pretty obvious if you can't go home and confess infidelity to a spouse that may not know about them. He knew about some of them, but he didn't know about a lot of them. And uh, there didn't seem to be any good way to make amends for that stuff. Because this, sponsor, this new sponsor said to me, you know, I believe if you stay there a day at a time and ask like a kind of loving wife, you can turn up some of your side of the And then if you do have to walk away from this marriage somewhere down the road, maybe you can do it without any guilt. Well, I like the idea of no guilt. That's part, the part that kind of caught my attention there. And that, that is what made me willing to, to start doing what she suggested. And so I began... Um, Pretending to be a kind and loving wife, essentially. Uh, I went home every day and I asked him how his day had been and I listened to all he told me. I was not the slightest bit interested in the beginning, but I did it. And you know, of course, after a while, the stories that he was telling me from his job began to have some continuity to them and he was talking about people that he worked with and so on. And so they, after a while, became interesting and I could ask certain questions even. And, you know, I mean, it's like making a friend. It's really, when you think about it. Uh, Time went by. She gave me a lot of direction. I don't really have to do a whole piece of on that, really. But uh, time went by, and uh, months. One night I was on my knees, and I was saying my prayers. My prayers were very, very simple um, in the early days. And in the morning, I would get on my knees and say, God, please help me stay sober today. Amen. And at night, I got on my knees and said, Dear God, thank you for keeping me sober today. Amen. That was it. I did it because my sponsor told me to do it. I believe in God. I've always believed in God, but I, I certainly never felt any connection there. You know, it was just words in the empty room, and uh, I never had the sense that God was listening or cared, or, but I did it. I did it because I knew if I missed a day, that the next day would be the day my sponsor would say, have you been getting on your knees to him that prayer? And I always wanted to be able to say yes, so that's why I did it. 
Well, Mom, I needed to tonight saying that the good God thank you to keep me so exactly in there. And I started to get up, and I realized that I'm comfortable in that house with that husband. I didn't need it. It's comfortable. But it hadn't happened that day. It had already happened. Somewhere back. I missed it. It's an amazing thing. It's the biggest problem in my life, and I didn't notice when it went away. I couldn't. I remember thinking, okay, well, I said yesterday. Well, yesterday was good too. I don't know when it happened. It happened somewhere before. I didn't understand that for a long time, how that could be, how the biggest problem in my life could go away without me noticing. I do, I do today, I understand how that can happen. It was because I had, for a considerable time, taken my focus off of the problem and I was busy in the solution. When I get busy in the solution, I always feel better. I Generally, I feel better right away, you know, even though the problem is still either, you know, in days, but, but I feel better because I'm taking some action. The reason I didn't notice when the problem finally went away is I've been so busy in the action for so long that I really have forgotten about the problem. This is really amazing to me. For me, this stuff really works. This kind of thing hasn't happened to me once or twice. It's happened to me a lot. I mean, it works. It really works. And then I got back down on my knees and I said, God, I believe in you. Thank you, God, for this feeling. I believe you need me to stay here married to this man that I could do this and have a happy life and stay sober and it would be okay. It's the first time that I thank God for anything other than just being sober. Not so long after that, we found out that my husband had transferred. And my very first thought was, I wish this would have happened when I heard it. See, right away, I think about me. How is this going to affect me? How am I going to feel? I don't like this about myself, but that's who I am. I'm selfish and self-centered, but this book describes me very well. What I did, of course, is I just kept doing what I've been doing. And, uh, he was sick for a year and a half, and he did die. And it was hard. It was a couple years and a half. Uh, but it was also the best year and a half of our marriage by a million miles over the next best year because of, of what you taught her, you know. Uh, I watched women in alcohol and men in alcoholics time and how they treated their spouses and I took from you. I accomplished you. I did things that you did. And, you know, I was really glad that I was there when my husband was sick and really needed me. And I was glad that I was there in a, in a believable role. That it, you know, he knew I wasn't just there because of his sick and dying. He knew that I was there because I wanted to be there. Because I had consistently been there in a kind of loving manner for a long time before he got sick. I'm very grateful that, uh, that I had followed my father's uh, suggestion in his regard. When he died, I went down to the Fulton Chapel and made the funeral arrangements. And the day of the funeral, a couple hundred people from Alcoholics Anonymous showed up. Now, none of those people ever met him. He didn't know him. But they came that day because they, they knew that I would meet him, which of course I did. And I realized that day in that chapel, was surrounded by all of the aprons, that what my sponsor had promised me had happened. I, I felt no guilt. I felt sad, obviously, about his death, but I felt no guilt. I felt clean and whole and right and current about my partner relationship. I knew that I'd made my mess that man completely. Uh, I would have missed a lot if I'd done it my way. Left to my own devices, I would never, ever have saved it, ever. You know, not only would have I missed that, but I believe that I would not possibly be able to have this relationship that I have with my husband today. I'm married to some of alcoholics and all of them. We have a good life. And, and um, I'm a fairly decent person. I'm not the best. I'm not the worst. And I'm a far side better than I was. And, you know, I learned to stay there with my late husband. If I hadn't stayed there, if I hadn't been willing to stay there and learn how to do it, I'd be practicing on this now. I know he's grateful I kind of have this stuff down a little better, you know? Uh, As I said, I, I mentioned it earlier, uh, this past year has been, been an interesting year. We've had three, my husband had two heart attacks, and we had bypass. I'm amazed that this guy being up here a, a week, I, my husband is not going to pull me into the year, but um, he had bypass surgery last March, and uh, his business, he, we were in business together, and his business um, took a terrible turn for the worst, and probably was not ever going to recover. It's sort of a dying industry. About a year ago, um, a little over a year ago, it, it occurred to me because he wasn't working and the business was bad. And I thought, gee, perhaps I could get a job. You know, uh, so I, I've always, you know, I just didn't really want to, thought I'd left my secretary all day behind me many years ago. It's not really what I wanted to do at the age of 50, but I've only really done two things in my life. And my secretary wasn't the one that I'm most likely to get paid for today. So, you know. So I um, called this agency and I said, you know, I'm, 
I think that's the advantage of being sober a while over being new is that you have enough sober experience to really, really believe that. And I do really, really believe that. Um, if you're new, I welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope that you stay here. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. If you're new, I recommend that you do three things. One is get a sponsor. Uh, if, you, if you're sitting here today and you don't have a sponsor, I recommend you get one before you leave this building today. I think it's the most important thing you might ever do. Second thing I recommend you do is get a home group, a place where you, where you belong, a place where you are the picture maker or the coffee maker or the chair setter upper or something, you know. Um, make it your meeting. The third thing I recommend you do is make a friend, somebody around your own message sobriety you can hang out with and talk to and bounce some stuff off of. My first friend's name is Betty. She was over three days left from me and uh, she hung out and talked about everything. I told Betty everything before I called my sponsor with it. You know, when you're new, you kind of like to hear how it's going to sound out loud before you call your sponsor. So I'd call Betty and say, okay, look, here's what I'm thinking of doing or words. Here's what I've just done. <laughs> Hoping that she'd say, oh yeah, me too, sounds cool. And sometimes she said that, but mostly she said stuff like, oh, geez, you better call your sponsor right now. And uh, that's a good kind of friend to have, you know, and I've had to be that kind of friend to her in return. Uh, when we were 10 years sober, Betty drank. And um, I talked to her about four months ago, and she was drunk at the time of our conversation. She's been trying for 10 years to get back here, in and out of AA meetings, drinking and not drinking, drinking and not drinking. You know, I don't know why I'm standing here and she is, but I'm not a better person for sure. I'm not a better person than she is, you know. Um, I have to believe that it's something in the things that I've been doing consistently for these 20 years. I get tired sometimes, especially this last year, and it's been a tough year, and I get tired, and I think, maybe somebody else could do this. I don't really. The problem is, I'm not sure what the key is here. You know, I, I might just cut out the one thing that's like really the key, and so I'm not going to do that. You know, I just keep marching along and doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and, um, you know, life is good. I'm very happy to be here, and very happy to be here. Thank you.